Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Natalie Dignam. Today I'm talking with my friend and fellow folklorist, Wyatt Chibley. Wyatt is an MA student in the folklore department at Memorial University. He's researching the Lebanese community in Newfoundland. Welcome to the show, Wyatt. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. So we started the program together, and you're still doing um, a lot of field work. I sure kind of am. <laughs> uh, most of my field work uh, is done now, but um, still, still doing a bit though. Feels a bit perpetual. I think this will end up being a project that's going to be beyond just just my thesis. I want to do yeah. something sort of a public uh, folklore project of some sort when I'm all done with this. So the cool thing about your research is um, when you started, you kind of found out that there wasn't a lot of pre-existing research on the community you wanted to study. Yeah, that's right. Um, not much in Newfoundland and not much in general. Now, I mean, there are two, um, well, essentially chapters or articles uh, written by John Ashton, who's a folklorist in Grenfell here. And uh, a lot of people I interviewed remembered another guy, I believe his name was Ross McKay from Nova Scotia, who had done, I think, more maybe genealogical research mm-hmm. of the community here, but was completely unavailable <laughs> to, uh, to anyone doing that research today. Um, so, yeah, not a lot written about the community here in Newfoundland and really not a lot written about the Lebanese diaspora in general, which is kind of why I was interested in it in, in the first place. But, uh Yeah. Could you just uh, describe briefly, like, what your research is about? Yeah, so I've been lucky to interview uh, people in the Lebanese community in Newfoundland, really all people who descend from Newfoundland's earliest uh, Lebanese immigrants. So we're talking, you know, people who would have arrived here um, around, say, the 1880s through maybe early 1900s. So people who are, you know, really mostly third or even fourth generation uh, Lebanese Newfoundlanders, um, people who, like myself, are mostly, you know, half Lebanese or a quarter Lebanese, uh, but, you know, it's an important part of their identity. Um, and I've been just talking with them, I guess, about the traditions that kind of help uh, keep them connected to, to feeling Lebanese um, and uh, uh, the way that folklore, you know, helps kind of uh, uh, continue that yeah, that that ethnic identity and uh, express it and yeah, that sort of thing. Basically. Yeah. So, what are some of the traditions that you have talked to people about? So, the biggest thing, the most universal thing, definitely has been food. Um, and I can say for say my own family, that's very much the same. That's the biggest thing. It's kind of it's kind of the thing, really. Like like for for my family, but then a lot of people I've talked to, even the people who are maybe less connected to that identity, like they just kind of grew up in a bit of a Lebanese uh, Newfoundland home, but maybe they don't strongly identify with it, they still would have grown up eating some of those dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely food, cooking it, eating it, uh, <laughs> growing it. Yeah, this it. was the, one of the cool <laughs> things I remember we talked about uh, that I did want to touch on was like all the the plants that like mm. Lebanese families, you notice, would like grow outside their homes to like make certain things. So sure. can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, people I've talked to, now this isn't universal, but I have found some really prolific gardeners in this community, either people themselves or say, you know, when they've talked to me about their parents, who have grown things that, you know, if you've done any gardening in Newfoundland, feel kind of wild that anyone (laughs) has been able to do here. Um, There's a woman I interviewed who grows uh, grapevines. 
Um, and she's not the only one who does. Uh, I, I, I know of, I think, three or maybe even four people who grow grapevines outside, not in a greenhouse in Newfoundland. She might be the only one who gets grapes, mm-hmm. but most of them uh, are grown for the leaves um, so that you can make uh, stuffed grape leaves, which is a fairly well-known Lebanese snack. Um, so that would be one. Also, uh, some people who either grow or say they remember their parents growing kusa, which is a Syrian squash. I think it's the same thing that Newfoundlanders know as uh, vegetable marrow or marrow, except Lebanese people pick it when it's really young. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a kind of like almost like summer squash, uh, maybe related to zucchini. Um, but yeah, all all kinds of things. But the the, the grape uh, grapevines have been the uh, the most interesting thing to to me personally. Uh, yeah, people are growing those outside here. Yeah. So, what are some of the the dishes that you have found have been very like defining of this mm. community? Um, a really big one would be kibbe. Um, now, kibbe, if you don't know it is a dish that most traditionally, I suppose, in Lebanon would be prepared with really lean lamb that is very finely ground, mixed with a burgal wheat or, or a bulgur. Is that kind of what people Yeah, know? that's yeah, how bulgur. I would say okay. it. So bulgur <laughs> and, um, uh, and, you know, some kind of spices that would change, you know, region to region, family to family, person to person. Um, and then uh, either can be baked or fried, stuffed, a lot of different ways of treating it, or uh, very popularly uh, uh, actually served raw, um, sort of spread on a, on a plate, um, drizzled with olive oil and eaten with, uh, with well, uh, Lebanese bread, pita bread, flatbread, whatever you want to call that. Um, sometimes accompanied with some onions, that sort of thing. So that's a very, I'd say, symbolic dish. For I think a lot of Lebanese people, but here too, uh, definitely. Um, and what's been interesting to me about it is that I know that dish usually made with uh, beef, like inside round, like really lean beef, and that's mm. pretty common in in the diaspora because it's a cheaper meat than lamb. Um, but I've talked to people here who make uh, fish kibbe, really? which you wouldn't eat raw, right? That'd be yeah. baked, but like ground cod. Uh, I think everything else more or less the same. Um, I've talked to people who put maybe a little bit of like savory, Newfoundland savory yeah. in the mix. I've talked to people, uh, I know of one person who has made it with moose, which uh, sounds like it would work perfectly. It's a really lean meat, All right? It's like moose kibbe. Um, that would be a really common one. But uh, also, um, you know, hummus majadra, which is like lentils and rice. Um, another dish that a lot of people have just called string beans and meat, <laughs> which is, uh, string beans, and meat. string beans and meat. So usually I guess beef with, uh, yeah, green beans, t- tomatoes, um, cinnamon, uh, cinnamon beef. I think some people call this too. Um, eaten with rice, basically sort of a stew kind of thing. Um, one that I was really surprised to find actually was okra, baimi, uh, people call it here. Uh, that's something, you know, to me, growing up uh, in a Lebanese family from uh, Western Massachusetts, we never ate okra. Okra was something that was like a southern vegetable. <laughs> yeah, I think me, yeah, being from 
pretty much the same area. Like, I've even noticed it in the grocery stores here, and it's not something that I ever encountered in our grocery store. No, no. So it's it's that's been really interesting um, that people grew up with that here. I think... I think just because so many of the first generation here owned uh, stores and were importing already, and because this, you know, I mean, we think of Newfoundland as being a bit isolated now, but, you know, really back in the day, this was along the major, you know, trade routes um, and was a place that was trading quite a bit. So, you know, I think it was fairly easy for them to import some of these ingredients that would be honestly harder to get, like in the Pioneer Valley <laughs> in Massachusetts or whatever, you know, far from from the coast. Um, so yeah, people, I mean, that would have come bottled, you know, back in the day, but, uh, you know, now of course you can get it fresh and some people I've talked to couldn't remember coming in fresh, you know, off a boat and that sort of thing. So yeah, that was actually a new one to me. I I never encountered any kind of Lebanese okra dish until I, until I came here. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to touch on again, um, as well was you talked about kibbe being kind of a symbolic dish. So is it something like, what is the, the like culture surrounding that dish? Is it something that's eaten during like certain holidays and stuff? Mm. Yeah. So kibbe, I guess would be probably most associated with holidays and special occasions. Um, some people could remember eating it maybe on Sundays, um, you know, maybe alternating Sunday dinner between say like the traditional, Newfoundland, you know, boiled Sunday dinner and then maybe a Lebanese meal. Some people have remembered growing up with that. And that's a time when you might have kibbe. Um, but it takes a lot of preparation, uh, especially if you're eating the raw kibbe. And if you don't have your own meat grinder, you have to, you know, call the butcher shop ahead of time or go in ahead of time, order the meat, um, specify exactly what you need, make sure that it's ground first thing in the morning when the meat grinder is clean. Uh, and then it gets passed through like three times, uh, through the meat grinder. Uh, you know, cause if you're gonna eat it raw, you can't have it <laughs> done in the middle of the day when they've been making sausages or yeah. something. Um, so even just getting the meat is a, a little bit of an ordeal. Um, actually preparing it isn't so hard, although traditionally, uh, it, it would have been if people were grinding it like by hand in essentially this big mortar and pestle, uh, which people call a jern or a jaron. Um, so, uh, yeah, it tends to be a bit more of a, of a special occasion food as well. I'd say a majority of people I've talked to, you know, they're generally not making just one Lebanese dish at a time. Like they'll make a whole meal. So they'll have kibbe, but they'll also make maybe say, you know, hummus, uh, kusa, uh, grape leaves, <laughs> you know, any of those things. Do the spread. Do, do, do yeah, like a, a big spread. Cause that's, I mean, that is traditionally how that food is, is most commonly eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certain dishes would be more weeknight kind of fare, but, but kibbe would not, would not be one of those. <laughs> It'd be a bit more of a, of a special thing. Yeah. I remember we were talking once about your research and you had mentioned like the, the mortal and, and pestle and yeah. like people having, uh, different ones in their homes or even like larger ones. Uh-huh. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So that, that's, uh, I guess what I was just talking about the, uh, the, the, uh, there's different pronunciations, but, uh, and, and I'm, I won't get any of them right because I don't speak Arabic, <laughs> but, uh, Jordan or, but most people I've talked to here call it a Jaren. And, um, those are, Traditionally, these really big, yeah, essentially mortar and pestle, um, we're talking like a stone base, like a heavy stone base. Some may be made of wood, but the ones I've seen here, um, have been these like huge, really, really heavy, uh, stone, um, I guess that would be the, 
mortar part, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, traditionally there'd be a lighter wood, you know, pestle that you're actually working with. I mean, still decently heavy, but, you know, not, you know, stone or whatever. Um, and traditionally that's what you would use to make a lot of Lebanese dishes. You know, any kind of grinding or pounding or anything, uh, would be done in one of those. So, um, if you were making kibbe, it would be ground in that. If you were making baba ganoush, it would be mashed in that. If you were making hummus, you would mash your chickpeas in that. You'd make tahini in that. Um, you'd crush garlic in that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd, you'd do all of that in the, in the jaron. And, um, today people mostly use food processors, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's much easier, but, um, but the texture, uh, well, mostly anecdotally, <laughs> I know that the texture is a bit different because even some of those things, uh, when I make baba ganoush, I use a, uh, a, a, a potato masher and that's a very different texture than putting it in a, you know, blender or a food processor. Yeah. Um, so people do have these, um, those really heavy old ones obviously are going to be kind of heirloom objects. There'd be fewer of those around, uh, but a lot of people I've talked to have, I guess, kind of artistic or decorative gerunds, um, in, in their houses. Um, a lot of them still get used to, especially for crushing garlic and that sort of thing, um, but, uh, yeah, but I think a lot of people, you know, that would be kind of connected to, if they remember, say, their grandmother, uh, using that, then, you know, it would be connected, I think, to a lot of these memories of, you know, growing up, of, of the home, of, of, you know, being in the kitchen and, you know, watching your grandmother, you know, make this food and, and, uh, yeah, I think it's a really special thing for, for that was going to be people. my next question. Like if it's a, an heirloom object that people like kind of pass down. Mm. Yeah. Those really old ones are, um, like I said, there, there would be fewer of those, but they, uh, I don't think they're anything in terms of the big ones. I haven't heard of anyone say like owning a new one of those. Now I'm sure people who are more like recent arrivals here who I haven't talked to, um, might. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but that might also just be a really old school way to make that food at this point. I have no idea. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe we should talk a little <clears throat> bit about your fieldwork process. Like, did you talk to families that kind of arrived around the same time or like settled in a certain mm-hmm. geographical area? Like, how did you define your community? Mm. So when I started doing this research, I was casting a rather broad <laughs> Net, and what I expected to uh, catch, I guess, was um, uh, a lot of people in St. John's who uh, lived in the area around New Gower Street, or would have grown up there, I should say, because that's where the community originally kind of clustered. So the area where like City Hall is now, um, and the uh, Delta, right? That's the Delta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that didn't used to be there and that was a a neighborhood unto itself a lot of shops and things like that and uh, a lot of lebanese owned shops with families living upstairs or living kind of up the hill as well um going towards like the marchant road up that way um so i expected i'd find a lot of people who grew up there because i knew that was a, a center for the community and i did find a couple people who either grew up there or you know they have memories of hanging out there as a kid you know if they didn't grow out uh, grow up there cuz their you know grandparents lived there or something um but what i found is that 
you know, Lebanese people settled all over this island, even in tiny communities. I mean, a lot of people I talk to, obviously, I'm in St. John's, so a lot of people from St. John's, but also a lot of people who have moved here from Corner Brook, you know, has a really big Lebanese uh, community. Um, Carboneer, like, I mean, we're talking even like Badger, uh, you know, um, you know, like, like Stephenville Crossing, um, you know, smaller communities. Uh, the first generation, a lot of them were pack peddlers and then shop owners. So as the railroad uh, was put in Newfoundland, uh, they kind of spread out a bit, you know, open a shop in this, you know, new community or a, or a booming community that doesn't have, you know, a store yet, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I never talked to anyone who was like a new immigrant and I, and I wasn't ever really excluding that either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I just didn't find anyone. And, uh, after a certain <coughs> point, it made sense for me to focus on people who were, um, I guess descendant from that early wave. So again, that would have been kind of like, uh, the earliest, I think would be like the 1880s or 1890s, sorry, 1890s, um, through, you know, like the early 1900s. I think the latest arrival in terms of anyone's ancestors coming here I've talked to or I've interviewed would be in the 20s. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of been my demographic. And I think that's part of what's interesting about it for me is that, you know, that's so long ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really. So to have people who are still um, strongly identifying with, with that identity has been really interesting. Have um, you found... Um like talking to these families kind of about the the immigration of their ancestors like that there was similar stories as to like why they ended up coming to Newfoundland? Yeah, um there are some similar stories. Now, a lot of people if you ask them say like why did your family come, either they don't really know. Yeah. Uh because it was never really talked about or or you know, they may have never met that particular ancestor. Or, you know, they might have, um, you know, an answer to do with uh, just greater economic opportunity in Newfoundland, um, Lebanon being in kind of bad shape economically at the time. Um, or, as well, religious persecution has come up a, a little bit. Um, most of that generation of emigrants from Lebanon were Christians. And uh, that was kind of, you know, the the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the last days of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, yeah, there was some, you know, inner strife between the Christian community and uh, I think mostly the Druze community, which I mean, they're kind of a religion under themselves in <laughs> in Lebanon and uh, I believe also Syria and Israel. But uh, anyway, those would be the reasons that I've heard mostly, but mostly economics and but some some reasons, like some immigration narratives have been interesting, you know, because you also, a story I've heard from a couple people now is some variation of, you know, my grandfather or great-grandfather or whatever um, was headed to New York and, uh, you know, got to Newfoundland, didn't really speak English, heard Newfoundland, thought it sounded like New York, got off the boat, met another Lebanese person they convinced him to stay he did i know of someone whose i think great grandfather was seasick 
so he just didn't want to get back on. Honestly, as good a reason as <laughs> I'm just too seasick. You know, <laughs> I can't continue. Like, like, uh, um, but also a lot of people came here um, as the result of secondary migrations. So a lot of people did go to New York first, and then they had family here, or they, um, you know, heard of some economic opportunity in like Atlantic Canada. So they'd maybe buy a bunch of goods in New York, a bunch of dry goods, and then kind of start peddling just north, uh, selling stuff. Um, a lot of them settling in Nova Scotia for a while and Cape Breton. And actually there is like a real link between Newfoundland and, and Cape Breton in, in this community. So, uh, yeah, and then, you know, Newfoundland was kind of, I, I suppose, the, the final frontier <laughs> in one way. Um, you know, if you were, if you were peddling, you know, eventually, well, you know, you gotta come here and, you know, it's, it's a untapped market. So, <laughs> so they'd come and sell here. And, uh, what's interesting is that a lot of the people I've talked to, they descend from immigrants that came from the same fairly small kind of agricultural community in North Lebanon, a place called Hadat al um, some people, you know, have ancestors that come from other places, but that's been, at least in the people I've talked to, that's been very well re- represented. It's like most people have at least, say, like one grandparent who came from there. Have you yeah. found, because uh, I've, like, looking at other immigrant communities, it's often common that, like, you know, the men will immigrate to some place and then they'll be set up with someone back home and uh, then, then like the women will follow like did that happen in this community or did whole families like move together um or did they marry newfoundlanders once they once they got here yeah a, a lot of them did marry newfoundlanders once they got here um a lot of families did move i, I mean i think <laughs> after a certain point that was probably one of the big things drawing people here um, you know, was knowing that you had family here and so yep. you could come. And now that might be like an uncle or something, not like your, your spouse, uh, per se. But, uh, I, I'd say a bit of, a bit of all of that. I've maybe heard a bit less about, um, yeah, maybe I've heard a bit less about kind of like whatever, uh, uh, sending away for, <laughs> for a spouse back home or something. Yeah. Um, now that you mentioned that, yeah, I don't think that's something I can really remember um, coming up in any of my interviews. I could be wrong about that. But um, mostly, yeah, either marrying someone local or uh, or coming here already married or marrying someone in, in the community here, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a lot of families did did come here together. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I find really fascinating that you talked about is uh, like the Lebanese community's role in and like the shops and like merchant culture here because newfoundland has to me like a very distinct and interesting like shop culture mm. i don't know what else to call it like like corner stores you mean? yeah like, like the corner yeah, stores okay. and just kind of like there's this his- people really remember like the families that own the shops and where they like every interview uh-huh. i've done in like other communities has been like there was a shop there and it was owned by this person and like right yeah so i wonder did they talk did you talk to people at all about the shops and like what they had in them um, yeah, I mean, a, a bit that would come up in interviews. I, I have to admit, it's not something that I necessarily focused on too much. But, um, I mean, a lot of those shops, like, let's say if they were open, like, mid-century or something, um, people, you know, that I've talked to who, you know, remember those shops in, say, maybe, like, the 50s or 60s or whatever, um, they had a lot of, I guess, what would be typical of a lot of stores, say, in, in Newfoundland or in downtown St. John's. 
um, you know, barrels of salted meats, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, um, someone I interviewed could remember that specifically, like, you know, having these, these barrels and, and there being kind of like a, a cat in the, in the shop, sort of like, I, I guess an old school, like bodega cat or whatever. There should always be a cat there. in the shop. Yeah, there really should, cause if not, you have mice, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of the kind of typical Newfoundland things at, at mid-century, that being said, also, I think a lot more imported goods. Um, you know, someone I've talked to, she could remember there being like barrels of olives downstairs, things like that. Uh, that would have been really unusual at the time. Um, again, just because they were able to import that kind of stuff. But, but a lot of it would have been mo- mostly that, I guess, you know, sort of a, an older version of maybe, I mean, the sort of things you'd find in a corner store today. Yeah, like I, a I the general like, store. And, and a lot of dry goods, especially, um, you know, that are going to keep pretty well but but a lot of vegetables too a lot of people can remember their um you know being fresh vegetables even things like eggplants right which again you would not have seen much <laughs> you know uh well as far as i know now um uh you know in, in newfoundland and you say like the 50s or something like that like yeah um were there other parts of your research that you focused on that you wanted to talk about um, yeah, the, the other things that have been interesting to me in terms of traditions, uh, a big one has been people, I guess like the, the material culture of their house, like the things they keep in their homes. We talked a little bit about those sort of like artistic renderings of, of Jaren's. Um, but also people have a lot of, um, like cedar objects, uh, sort of souvenirs essentially from Lebanon, um, either made out of cedar, uh, well, usually some kind of like wood burning of maybe of a Lebanese cedar being the, the kind of national emblem of Lebanon. Uh, people have had a lot of things like that. And it's interesting because a lot of these people aren't people who have gone to Lebanon <laughs> or ever been there. Um, but, you know, something that maybe a friend gave them or was in the family or that sort of thing. That's been very common. A lot of people um, have had those sorts of, of decorations. Um, and another thing that's really interesting... Uh, I guess in the St. John's community is that, uh, well, I, I, outside of St. John's as well, but I mean, tons of musicians, uh, in the Lebanese community. Now, I mean, some of that might be being in Newfoundland maybe <laughs> as well, but, uh, I guess what's been interesting to me is that a lot of, uh, Lebanese musicians I have discovered in this research, um, they don't play or didn't play what we think of as Newfoundland music being this kind of Irish or English derived folk music. And they didn't really play Lebanese traditional music. They played kind of whatever the popular music was at the time. And what's really interesting is that uh, big bands, there were two big bands in St. John's that were kind of two Lebanese families, uh, um, the Michaels and the Andrews's <laughs> uh, family bands. And, um, you know, playing like, yeah, big band stuff, jazz stuff, right? I mean, uh, at a time when, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but, you know, Probably only a few bands doing that at the time. So, um, anyway, I, I mentioned that because we've focused, uh, in our discussion about the Lebanese community and how the Lebanese things it does, mm-hmm. I guess, but it's been interesting also, you know, just to uh, discover these other things. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're talking to someone who is, say, half Lebanese or quarter Lebanese, it might be a big part of their identity, but it isn't all of it. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, that's been interesting as well. Cool. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Wyatt. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>